This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Jay Feinberg, founder of Gift of Life, and a fascinating, fascinating person. Very excited to speak to you today, Jay. How are you? Very well, thanks. I appreciate your having me on. Wonderful. Very, very excited to do so. Um, and as we do with all of our guests, uh, we'd like to just start by getting to know you a little bit, um, some of the background before, of course, all the, uh, the more recent accomplishments that have uh, really catapulted you to fame, so to speak, in the Jewish world. But where did you grow up? What was your early background like? Uh, I grew up in, uh, in New York State, in uh, Rockland County, and uh, lived there until I went to college, uh, which was in Pennsylvania, and my parents moved to New Jersey. Where did and you go to college? I, I went to a small liberal arts school in, um, in central Pennsylvania called Dickinson College. Sure. And was on the pre-law track, but then decided to take a year off and uh, work for about a year and then go back and, uh, and go to law school. Where did you go to law school? So I actually didn't, and that's part of the story. <laughs> Although I was, I was accepted to law school and just getting ready to go, but, uh, but then life took a different path. <laughs> wow. Now, did you grow up in a very Jewishly connected home? What was, what was kind of your Jewish background? Um, I grew up in a, uh, in a conservative home. And was your family very active, or what was kind of their involvement at that time? Um, they were active in our, in our local synagogue, the uh, Orangetown Jewish Center, which was in, right near where we lived. And which, which part of Rockland County was this that you grew up in? In uh, Tapan. Okay. So not Muncie, which is like the... Uh, right, right. Not far from Muncie. But, uh, so you, you say that your law school plans got derailed. What was the reason for that? So as I said, I took about a year off to, uh, to get some you know, practical experience working in Manhattan. Um, I was actually working for the Federal Reserve as a foreign exchange analyst. Applied to law school after a year and was accepted. And uh, about a week later, I was down the Jersey Shore, which is where a lot of us who, uh, who live in northern New Jersey tend to go down the shore for a weekend with my, uh, with my family and uh, started to feel like I had uh, developed a case of the flu and uh, subsequently went back to northern New Jersey to see my doctor, who pretty quickly sent me to the hospital, and I was subsequently diagnosed with leukemia. Wow. Uh, that kind of derailed the, the law school direction a little bit. <laughs> oh, it sounds like it. What was that like for you emotionally? That sort of must have been very jarring, I mean, to go quickly from being on vacation, going to the doctor, and then, boom, all of a sudden, you're in the hospital. I mean, what, what was that like? Yeah, you know, it's probably the same as it would be for a lot of uh, young people who are just freshly out of college and just starting their careers and their lives and everything. And they kind of have this um, feeling that they're invincible and that they're ready to take on the world and that nothing can stop them. And it's a, it's a great feeling to have when you graduate and you're ready to, to move forward in real life. So it was kind of like a, hitting a brick wall, I guess. Wow. And so what did you do from there? I mean, right away, did you enter some kind of a treatment protocol? Were you admitted to the hospital? Or what was kind of the, the next step? Yeah, so I was, I was admitted to the hospital, um, a local, local hospital in northern New Jersey. 
and was uh, officially diagnosed and was told that the type of leukemia that I had would, um, would respond to chemotherapy for a couple of years, but that ultimately the only cure for the disease was to have uh, a bone marrow transplant. And it was hard to accept that I had a disease that was potentially um, terminal, but the great part of it was at least there was some way that I could be cured of the disease, and that was that you know, light at the end of the tunnel. I started on chemotherapy, and the, uh, the doctor um, suggested that we test my immediate family to see if I might have a family member who might serve as a potential donor for me for a bone marrow transplant, and we did that. I have uh, two brothers. Uh, the best, the closest possibility would be a sibling. There's a one in four chance that you'd match a sibling. And while they matched each other perfectly, they didn't match me at all. Wow. Uh, so we uh, subsequently, if you don't have a relative who's a match, next step would be to look for uh, unrelated donors who might be a potential match. And we did that. And that's where really the interesting part of this comes about with respect to um, what the chances are of finding a, a total stranger who could serve as a potential donor. Now, before we just get into that, could you just kind of share with our listeners maybe in particular those who are not medically uh, inclined or uh, educated. What exactly is a bone marrow transplant? What does bone marrow do? (laughs) What what is it exactly? Yep. So the the bone marrow, which is found in the hollow cavities of the body's large bones, um, is sort of like a honeycombed area And it's where the marrow resides, and the marrow is responsible for producing um, the various components of your blood and your immune system. So your white blood cells, which fight infection, your red blood cells, which provide oxygen, and your platelets, which perform clotting, obviously are very important for survival. And you need healthy bone marrow in order to produce those cells. So when something goes wrong with the marrow, when you develop a form of blood cancer, which in my case was a type of leukemia, uh, and there are many different types, treatment is typically chemotherapy. Um, Now, these days, there are some other treatments that are available, but at that time, pretty much just chemotherapy. And unfortunately, while the chemotherapy can induce a remission, many times it doesn't offer a cure. And the cure for a lot of these patients is to replace their diseased bone marrow with healthy bone marrow from another individual, whether that's a member of their family, a related donor, or someone who is a match who's not a relative, who's an unrelated donor. And that's what happens. The patient undergoes what we call conditioning, which involves uh, chemotherapy and some other treatments to destroy their existing cancerous bone marrow, and it's replaced with cells that are donated by a donor. And uh, we'll get into that also because while we talk about bone marrow transplants, the reality is is that it's really not marrow anymore. It's actually um, the same stem cells that are found in the marrow can be taken from the bloodstream now, which makes it very, very easy for people to do. Right. I was gonna, I was going to ask you. I mean, is this? Are we talking about a major operative procedure? Like, what exactly is involved in being a donor, and has it changed? Meaning, when when it was your in your time, so to speak. Was it one thing and now it's become something else? Yeah, so, you know, in the early days of bone marrow transplants, it was just as it sounds. It was taking the the marrow from the posterior aspect of the pelvic bone, the back of the hip, from the donor in an operating room while the donor is under anesthesia. There's no cutting or stitching, 
but it involves taking a needle and syringe and withdrawing the marrow um, until you have enough to be able to transplant the patient. Donors typically um, go home the same day. They typically feel like they've fallen and bruised their tailbone, like falling off the ice. And they can go back to their normal routine, but it does involve anesthesia, and it is a procedure that's done in an operating room. And that's the way it was done for years until about 15 years ago when um, that changed through the ability to take those same blood stem cells that are found in the marrow from your arm, from your blood. And uh, that really revolutionized the way that it was done and made it substantially easier for people to be able to participate um, as a donor because they didn't have to go through anesthesia. They didn't have to go into a hospital operating room. They could do it in a blood center and they could watch a movie or two while they're doing it. Did that, besides making it more comfortable for patients, did that actually expand the pool of prospective donors in terms of maybe there was people that would otherwise have been at risk for a procedure to be under anesthesia or things like that and now they can actually participate? Yes, it did. Yeah. And, and the fact is also that overall donors tend to be um, more comfortable doing the stem cell procedure than the marrow procedure. So more people were, were willing to participate in that way. And that procedure, for any of the listeners who are familiar, is very much like donating platelets or plasma in a blood center. So what happens is that you're, you sit in a very comfortable reclining chair, um, a needle is put into one arm, um, blood is withdrawn from the arm. It goes through a, what we call a cell-separating machine, which is basically a large centrifuge. It spins the blood very fast. The white blood cells that we're looking for, where the stem cells are found, are separated from the red blood cells and all of the other cells. And they're taken out from the machine, and then the rest of the blood is put back into the other arm. And this is all happening while the donor is relaxing, watching a movie or talking to their family or friends. And it takes a few hours. And when they're done, they go home and they go about, they go back to school, they go back to work, they go about their normal routine. So now back to our, uh, our narrative, our story here, uh, you're undergoing this, this treatment for chemotherapy and simultaneously searching for a donor, struck out on the sibling front. And then it sounds like you were sort of stuck and you were looking around. What did you do from there? So uh, first thing we did was go to a very large cancer center in New York, which wasn't far from where we lived, and sat down with a transplant physician who had run a search of uh, the donors that existed in registries around the world. And back at that time, you know- What year are we talking about, by the way? We're talking about 1991. Okay. Uh, at that time, you know, this was um, somewhat new, and there were very, very few registries in the world and very few donors. You know, looking historically, um, today there are nearly 30 million people registered as donors in about 40 or 50 different countries. And back then there were 300,000. So wow. very, very different numbers. And we went to the hospital, and this is we being my parents, myself, and my two siblings. And we crowded into one of those tiny examining rooms, which we're all familiar with. And the doctor came in and he said, you know, we did the search and uh, you already know that you don't have any family members who are a match. We did the search and we can't find any um, unrelated donors for you that exist out there. And he said, and quite frankly, looking at your tissue type, I just don't think that you're really ever gonna find a match. So my suggestion is go home, prepare your bucket list, do the things that you wanted to do in life while we continue with your chemo and try to keep you comfortable until the disease begins to fall out of remission and accelerate. 
And you know, I, I asked the question, well, why is it that you think that it's so unlikely that I would find a match? And his answer was, and this is, was shocking at the time, we know the answer to the question now, but is, is what he said was, because you're Jewish. And I had no clue why my ethnic background would play a role in my ability to have an equal opportunity to you know, find a match. You know, why would that possibly be the case? And you know, he explained it and it made a lot of sense, which is that your tissue type is inherited like the color of your eyes or your hair. So your best chance of finding a genetic match is someone who shares a similar ethnic background. And for me, that was someone who was Eastern European Jewish. And at the time, there were very, very few Jewish donors in the pool of donors that existed in the very tiny registry that was out there. So it was basically like looking for a needle in a haystack. Now, in general, what are the odds of somebody being a match? You know, it's obviously with blood donation, it's very, very high, right? So with bone marrow donations, just for your regular Joe Smith on the street, what are the odds? And then, and then how precipitously do those odds decline for a Jewish individual? Right. So, you know, it's changed dramatically over the years. At that time, the doctor cited the number less than 5% for me at that time when I was searching. The registry was not diverse, and there were very few, if any, Jewish people in the registry to begin with. So obviously that number will change as more people are added. And I'll sort of fast forward and then go back again. So by comparison today, because of all of the recruitment that has taken place, that number is upwards of 75%. Wow. Uh, I'm 5%. And honestly, other groups have similar experiences. So if you are Hispanic, you have like a 55, 50 to 55% chance. If you're black, you have less than that. If you're Asian, even less than that. Is that because Uh, there are fewer members of of said population registered? But if they would get more people involved, then they would also... Exactly, exactly. It it has to do with diversifying the registry among various uh, um, ethnicities. So... You know, going back to my story, I think the biggest asset that I had while sitting in that tiny little examining room was something that I think can only be appreciated in the Jewish community. And it's very, very scientific. It's something that I've coined the phrase, the Jewish mother effect. (laughs) But my Jewish mother was in the room. And like any Jewish mother, she wasn't going to see her son die and was going to do whatever it took to find that elusive donor. So for her, it made perfect sense. You know, the doctor knew a lot about leukemia and a lot about tissue typing and transplants, but he had no idea about running donor drives and getting more people into the registry and how forthcoming and willing the Jewish community is to help save a life. Pikuach nefesh. And leaving the hospital that day, that was precisely the goal. So we we went home to my parents' house in New Jersey and sat down in the dining room and had our very first brainstorming session just among family and close friends and decided that we were going to take this proactive step. And if there weren't enough Jewish people in the registry, we were going to change that. I mean, that's a a massive task. How do you start such a thing? You just, you know, start putting up flyers around the neighborhood. This is before social media, I might add, before really the internet in a sort of commercial sense. How do you start that process? 
So uh, it is exactly what you said. It's very, very grassroots. So without the benefit of social media and uh, the internet and everything else, um, it really truly was word of mouth, uh, having people go out in the community and put up fly post flyers in restaurants and bakeries and, you know, going to Federation and asking them to send out mailings and to the synagogues and, you know, really very much boots on the ground, um, you know, grassroots efforts. And it really all started, um, at that time we were living in West Orange, New Jersey, and it really started precisely that way. That's exactly what we did. And our first drive was at a synagogue right across the street from our house. And we were not surprised because we knew that in the Jewish community, people come out to help members of the community. But we were truly shocked when we came out to the drive that day and we saw that the line extended out the doors of the synagogue, down the sidewalk, into the street, and there were West Orange police cars there doing crowd control. Oh my goodness. So that was truly remarkable and inspiring and speaks a lot of the Jewish community. So I guess from there, it just kind of took on a life of its own or did you have to really manage every drive? One thing is that, uh, you know, today um, people are, I think a lot of people are familiar with doing a cheek swab. Yep. But back then, it was a blood sample. You know, people, we had phlebotomists at the drives and people were rolling up their sleeves and having blood taken. It was, you know, not as easy as just putting a cotton swab in your mouth. Right. And yes, it really did spread very quickly. I think in a lot of respects, because it was so new and grassroots, the media, you know, was, was very interested in covering it. And we were one of really the first, you know, at that time to do such a thing. So it was covered in the local media, very quickly got picked up by the Jewish Telegraphic Agency and by lots of newspapers, and it was on TV. And before we knew it, we were getting calls from Jewish communities all over the, uh, the Northeast and then all over the country, and then started getting calls from literally from all over the world, from um, Jewish communities in Canada, from Israel, from Australia, from everywhere. It just grew very, very rapidly. It kind of just exploded. And each community asking how they could host a drive. Yes. How does it work? Is there like a single database somewhere, some master listed, some server somewhere in back office? Or I yeah. mean, is, there, is it your own registry? Like, how does that work? So back then, that didn't necessarily exist. So for a coordinator or a physician at a transplant hospital to search for a, an unrelated donor for a patient, they had to send faxes to different registries, the registries would search internally on their own, just, you know, like very, very simplistic local databases, and then fax back the results to the coordinator. And then the coordinator would look and see if there were matches and then fax back to them and say, we're interested in this donor or that donor, and then wait and then for the fax. And they had to do this for all the registries. Crazy. So that has long since changed. So today, all of the registries in different countries, um, like Gift of Life that are out there, all collaborate in one global registry. And that global registry, the transplant coordinators have the ability to go online, securely log in with a username and password, run a search for a patient, click submit, and within about two seconds, have all of the results from all of the registries all combined, aggregated into one report, and can take action that way. So who, you, who manages this global database? Is there like a central authority? Yeah, it's, it's called the World Marrow Donor Association, and they run the, the international registry. 
And uh, they're actually located in the Netherlands huh. at Leiden University Medical Center. And they, they run it for all the registries. Wow. How many registries are there out there that, that you know of? So I believe there's uh, somewhere in the order of about 60, 65 registries globally. We all recruit donors and manage donors in the countries where we're located, um, which is the most effective way to do it. Do you know what where Gift of Life sort of ranks in, in the number of donors? Yeah, so we're considered a mid-size registry. We're not small and we're not super large. We're um, just closing in on 300,000 donors. We'll be at about close to 350,000 by the end of the year. There are some registries, only a handful, that have several million donors, and then many, many more that are our size, and then some that are very, very small that haven't really grown yet. So now, going back to your story, you started doing these drives. Did that yield any immediate results? Like, what was that process? So we actually ran these drives because of volunteers calling from, you know, all over the country and all over the world wanting to run drives. We ran these drives for about four years. And during that time, we were very, very happy to hear that we were finding matches and making transplants happen for lots of other patients in similar circumstances, which was really an awesome thing. Unfortunately, I didn't have a match, but we continued until about four years. Um, This was in early 1995, at which point what the doctor said started to happen, and that was that the chemotherapy stopped working and the disease started to accelerate and I was getting sicker. So we had run a drive in Israel, and we had found a donor who was not a perfect match, who was actually a multiple mismatch. And the doctors gave me the choice, either do nothing or just give it a shot with that donor and just hope for the best. It wasn't great odds, but, you know, maybe better than doing nothing. What would be the, the downside would be rejection or just it wouldn't work at all? Like what was the... Yeah, it's a, it's a type of rejection. In solid organ transplants, it's called rejection. With bone marrow transplants, it's actually called graft-versus-host disease, which is the opposite of rejection. Instead of the host fighting the graft, it's the graft or the donor cells fighting the host. So that's the risk. And we started to prepare for a transplant with this individual. And then a young man from Chicago, his name is Benji Merzel, um, who I've remained very close friends with ever since, called my folks and said, I want to run one last drive for Jay. And really the way this all came about was that a drive that took place for me in Canada had found a match for a Jewish young man in Toronto, a college student, and his friends wanted to pay it forward. So, you know, Benji wanted to pay it forward and he wanted to see if he could find a donor from this last drive. And we said, absolutely, you know, it may not help me, but you know, there's other patients out there and maybe it'll help somebody else. So in the meantime, we started down the track of the donor who was the multiple mismatch, and he went ahead to organize this drive, which was not in Chicago. It was actually in Milwaukee at the Wisconsin Institute of Torah Study, WITS, and started to prepare for that. His mother was a phlebotomist, so she was going to draw the blood, and he was going to bring some friends from the neighborhood in, uh, in Chicago, and they were going to drive the hour to um, Milwaukee and run the drive. So that morning, and Becky, my my donor, probably could tell this better, but uh, that morning, a young lady by the name of Khani was supposed to go, but she was not able to. So her sister, by the name of Becky, went along to help, you know, hand out flyers and encourage people to, to get tested and tell them what it was all about. You know, we need volunteers at these drives. That's what they're all about. We can't do them without volunteers. So, you know, this group drove to WITS in Milwaukee, ran the drive. 
They tested, I believe, about 135 people. And at the end of the drive, this young lady uh, who was helping out with the flyers and everything else decided that she was going to have the blood test done. I think she was had a fear of needles and she wasn't sure if she was going to do it, but she said, I'm going to do it at the very end of the drive. And you can probably guess by now where I'm going with the story, right? About two weeks later, we got the test results from the drive and the test results were in rows on a fax. And the very last row, and they were all by ID number, the very last barcode ID number in the last row on the report was my perfect match. And Unbelievable. Young lady by the name of Becky Fabisoff, who I understand you know. Yes. <laughs> Becky Keller, that's her married name. Yes. No. So, uh, so, you know, the story that we always tell people, that I always tell people whenever I speak, is that it's so important that people understand that it only takes one person to save a life, and it could be any one of us. She decided that the very end, as they were closing up shop at, the, at Wits, that she wanted to do it. And if she didn't do that, I wouldn't be here today. Incredible. So how quickly did it go from there? And did you immediately reach out? Was the procedure done right away? Was it a no-brainer that she was going to acquiesce and, and do this? Like, what was the what was the next step? So, you know, obviously, I, I wasn't privy to the, you know, the, the conversations that I'm sure Becky had with her family and, and everybody. But as I understand, and just knowing Becky over the years, I don't think there was any question that she was committed to doing this. She's just a very, very caring individual. And thankfully, you know, many people who go through, you know, the process of lobbying or at that time doing the blood test are caring, compassionate people. That's why they do it, you know, because that, that's the kind of person that they are. So she went ahead and at that time they weren't doing the stem cells. At that time it was marrow from the hip. So, you know, it wasn't as simple for her. It took a couple of weeks to get everything in place and she had to go for a physical exam and make sure that she was eligible to do it. And I needed to go to the hospital where I was going to have the transplant, which at that time, there weren't as many hospitals that did bone marrow transplants as there are today. So mine was out in Seattle, Washington. You both flew out there for this procedure. So actually, I flew out there for the procedure, um, but she donated locally in Chicago. Okay. And then Benji, along with another friend of ours, uh, Rochelle, both had the opportunity to take the cooler on the plane and bring it to Seattle. So Becky donated, and she did well with it, and uh, they flew the marrow out to Seattle. And by that point, I had already gone through chemotherapy and radiation treatments to destroy my existing immune system. So I was in an isolation room. If you know, you've heard the story of people in like the, the bubble, you know, in the plastic bubble, that was me. And then I got the word that the plane had landed and that the marrow was on its way to the hospital. And an hour or two later, at about 11 o'clock at night on June 27th, 1995, the nurse came in with a bag of cells, hung them on the infusion pole and, uh, and gave me my transfusion. You know, when you hear bone marrow transplant, people immediately think of what happens with a solid organ transplant if you're getting a kidney or something like that. But it's far from it, obviously, and it's somewhat of a misnomer. So really, a bone marrow transplant is a transfusion. So they take those cells that the donor donated, they transfuse them into the patient. It takes a few hours, they do it very slowly, and when it's over, something miraculous happens. And that's that those cells, and they don't know how it happens, even to this day, but those stem cells from the marrow go into the bloodstream and then migrate to the hollow cavities of the body's large bones, take root, 
and start to produce healthy cells. It's called engraftment. We don't know how it happens, but it happens. How quickly did you know that this thing had worked, that you were better? I mean, are, are you considered, quote unquote, cured, like right away? What's that process? So it takes a couple of weeks before the, um, the donor's cells engraft and start to produce enough healthy blood cells for you to be considered um, safe enough to leave the isolation room, that bubble, and then leave the hospital. So that took a few weeks. Um, at which point I stayed in Seattle because I had to go to the hospital every day to be checked and to get transfusions until my bone, you know, Becky's new, Becky's marrow, my new marrow was able to take root. And really, you know, I was able to ultimately go home a couple months after that back to New Jersey. And was it smooth sailing from there? Was it just the leukemia was gone? So it's not smooth sailing, you know, there are definitely bumps in the road and it takes a while before you're really, you know, recovered from, from a marrow or stem cell transplant. So it's, it's a bit of a long road. It took a number of months after that. I would say after a year, I was really back to myself and able to go about daily life and feel confident that I wouldn't get an infection or something like that. And what was interesting was that literally after that one year of recovery, the phone rang one day at home, and it was the dean of the law school in New Jersey saying, we've held your seat all these years. Are you coming back now? And uh, my, my guess is that you told him uh, that you were not coming back, and which really leads to my question, you know, just really astounding to me. You know, at this point, you could have very easily called it a day. You had done amazing things, not only for yourself, but for many other recipients, you know, made many other shidduchim, many other matches for people. And that's a, a beautiful, noble thing. And move on with your life. Go back to law school or, or whatnot. But from the fact that we're, we're talking here today and you're sitting in the, I imagine, the gift of life office, uh, that's not what you did. So what happened that you decided we're not stopping with these drives, we're continuing, we're growing them, and we're going to actually create an entire organization that's going to change the face of the Jewish approach to donating and really dramatically change the landscape for those who are in need. Right. So at the point where I had found my match, where Becky was found, we had found matches and facilitated transplants for several hundred other patients. Several hundred? Several hundred at that point, four years into you know the search for a donor. So you can imagine, to me, it's a no-brainer. How could you not continue? And what Becky did for me and what literally at that four-year mark, we had tested 60,000 people. What those 60,000 people had done because they were motivated by, you know, my name and face and human interest story in the newspapers and uh, went to a drive, waited on long lines and then stretched out their arm with a needle and donated a blood sample. And Becky had donated her marrow. How could I not? It was incumbent upon me. It was a no-brainer that, you know, I had to pay it forward. And that there were just too many other patients in similar circumstances who weren't being given that equal opportunity to benefit from the transplant that could save their lives. And we had built a tremendous resource with hundreds and hundreds of volunteers and the, the infrastructure. It just seemed that it would be literally a crime not to continue it. Did you sort of just take this on as your personal mission? Did you immediately establish a full organization? Was there already an infrastructure in place? How did you kind of take it to the next level? So there was an infrastructure, but the from a human resource standpoint, we were a volunteer-driven organization. 
Right. So really, in order to become, you know, a full-fledged public donor registry, that required staffing. And uh, we were in donated office space during that four-year period. A local builder had seen, you know, one of the stories and said, you know, you can't possibly be doing this out of your parents' dining room. We're going to give you office space. Wow. um, we had operated out of there for four years and there was furniture donated and office equipment donated. And, you know, it was, that was basically what we had. But in terms of running basically what is considered from a regulatory standpoint, a tissue bank, we had to put formal structure in place. So it took about a year and then eventually we built the initial IT systems, started to hire staff and started to grow the organization and run more drives for other patients out there. A lot of our drives were very much patient focused at, you know, in the early days and then started to grow to other programs that I'll share um, with you. I think you're familiar with, but a lot of them in the early days were very much, you know, someone in the Jewish community needed a donor and then massive drives happened as a result. And that's how the core of the database really started to grow. But that's really how it started. It sounds like uh, at this point, I think you're talking to me from Florida. Is that right? Yes. So at some point you moved down there and took took the show on the road. and. Very, very early on, and I'm still a New Yorker and a New Jerseyan, but... Like most people in Florida. (laughs) After my transplant, I just couldn't couldn't tolerate the freezing cold weather and everything, so very nicely in South Florida. But, you know, we do drives all over the country. And, you know, obviously with the benefit of now having, you know, the internet and, you know, all of the, these kinds of resources like you and I talking over video conference call, it's all very doable to make that happen. Yeah, as we're talking on this video, for those listeners who can't see, there are beautiful palm trees in the background, <laughs> essentially taunting me with each blow in the wind. <laughs> You're welcome to come anytime. It's, we'll it's, promise good weather. That I would love to be down there. Um, so Jay, what, what have you done? What are some of the programs you've instituted? Bring us current. What are, what's the organization like today? How many people are working there? How many drives are you doing? How do you get out the word? And so forth. So fast forward today, we're close to 300,000 donors in the registry. In our headquarters in Boca Raton, Florida, we're about uh, 45 employees, a dozen more in other places in New York, New Jersey area, in Boston, in Washington, D.C. area, Maryland, um, in Los Angeles, and we actually have a team in Israel both our IT staff and we have recruitment staff in Israel because we swab all of the um, birthright participants. And we also do swabbing with an organization called Kedma in Israel that has interns that go to um, yeshivas and seminaries to, uh, to swab as well. But here in the United States, we have what we call our Campus Ambassador Program which uh, enables us through the efforts of about 130 interns on 80 different college campuses across the country are representing Gift of Life as recruiters and ambassadors to grow the registry. We also have a high school program that is growing where we go to high schools and encourage the, uh, the seniors to, uh, to swab and join the registry. We're really growing the registry very rapidly. And nowadays, like you mentioned, it's not a blood donation of any sort or, or sampling. It's really as simple as a swab in, in the cheek and stick it in an envelope. Is that correct? 
Exactly. It makes it much easier to run a drive. You don't need phlebotomists there and to do it. And people don't have to have a needle in the arm. So swab is very, very simple. And actually today, um, you don't even need to fill out a form at the drives anymore. You know, historically, it was a form where you fill out your personal identifying information and then fill out a health history questionnaire. So today, you actually just use an app on your phone. So when people are at the drives, they fill it out on the app on the phone. Um, they do their swab and they're done. The nice thing about that is that when they're called as a match, they'll get a notification from us, a push notification on the app saying you're a match and be in touch. And ultimately our goal is that that's the way that donors will be managed through that whole process of being called as a match and donating is really through technology, the generation Z or you know, the I generation <laughs> is accustomed to. <laughs> How have you been able to fund this massive organization? We were talking about 45 employees in one location and and hundreds of you know, volunteers and obviously the materials for the drives. I mean, this is a major, major enterprise. How is that developed? Yeah, and our largest expense actually is just tissue typing the donors because this year our goal is 50,000 donors. That's uh, you know, it's $60 a test. That's a lot of money. Yes. Uh, so we have a development department. We have a team, uh, a development team who do a tremendous amount of grant writing to foundations we have events, we have our walk run 5Ks called our Steps for Life events in several different cities. We have a gala that we've been holding every year for the past 18 years in New York. Um, we now have smaller events also growing in Los Angeles and other cities and more events in New York, in South Florida, in Boston. So it's, it's really grown dramatically from a fundraising standpoint. Is there government funding available for this kind of thing as well? So we don't receive government funding, but as an organ and tissue bank, we do receive funding from transplant centers for the medical services that we provide. Um, that's from our donor services and transplant activities. And in closing, sort of, what's your personal role currently in, in this whole operation? Just overseeing all the pieces? Where do you invest your time nowadays? Um, so I'm the uh, CEO, and I spend a lot of my time when I'm not doing speaking engagements and things like that, really just growing the strategic mission and vision of the organization, developing new programs, getting involved actually in new cellular therapies that we're about to become involved in. You know, you might hear a lot about immunotherapy in the news these days. Yes. And there are going to be very, very new and exciting ways where our donors will have an opportunity to help many, many more patients through biotherapies, immunotherapy, and such. And we're very, very excited about that. So well, that really touches on my last question, which is simply what's the next chapter? Where is this whole enterprise going? Is stem cell work involved in this, cloning, all of that cutting edge technology? Does that all fit in here? And, and what's really the next frontier for Gift of Life? Yeah, so we're not cloning, and uh, we don't want to scare anybody. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes I joke around and say, well, we're very selective about the people who we clone. But unfortunately, we don't have the technology to clone people. But what's exciting is new ways to be able to help improve outcomes for patients and to be able to make the treatments available to people with many other different conditions besides the blood cancers, various different types of immune disorders and genetic diseases, and uh, even getting involved at some point in the future in regenerative medicine and all kinds of cellular therapies that will require people to donate stem cells to be able to help more people. 
So it is an evolving field and we're very excited about it because obviously our goal is to help every patient in need whenever they need that cell therapy and we're committed to that. Jay, tell us where we can learn more about Gift of Life online. If people want to get involved, want to donate, want to hold a drive, want to participate in a drive, any and all of the above, where can people learn all about that online? Yeah, so our website is giftoflife.org. And people can go on the site to learn more. They can link to other microsites that we have for different initiatives, like our Campus Ambassador Program, the Senior Swab Program for high schools. So if we have college students who want to get involved, please apply. Applications are rolling. If we have uh, high school students who want to get involved in bringing up Gift of Life to their senior classes, please contact us. We have a team who works on that. Really, any information that they would need is on the site. People can also click on the link on the top of the page to get swabbed, and uh, they can order a kit online, and the kit will be sent to their home. Or they could look for any of the 2,000 drives that we run in communities all over the country every year and go to a local drive. Um, There are many, many different ways that uh, the people can get involved. So if they want to be involved in Israel with activities that we're doing there, by all means, you know, we'll connect them with our team in Israel. So any way they can do it through the site. Jay Feinberg, giving the gift of life to thousands of people all over the world. Really an honor to speak with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Same here. Thank you so much for having me. Just here back in studio, in our conversation with Jay, he mentioned his magnanimous donor, Becky, then Fabisoff, now Keller. And he also mentioned that she could probably share the story, at least from her perspective, a little bit better than he could. So we decided to reach out to Becky and get her on the program and hear what the experience was like as a donor to Jay and in general, how it's impacted her life and what it's meant to her. So here we go, Becky Keller. We have on the line Becky Keller, Jay Feinberg's bone marrow donor from back in the mid-90s. How are you, Becky? Doing well, Baruch Hashem. How are you? Thank God. Wonderful. So we've heard from Jay. We've heard much of his story and a great deal about his journey and the organization that he's built and is still building. Uh, But as he puts it, my donor could say it better than I can. And it's quite an amazing tale. And I'd love to hear it from your mouth, from your perspective. Tell us the story from beginning to end of your donor journey. Well, it started when I was 16. We got a phone call in the house. It was a neighbor who lived down the block. His name was Benji Merzel. He was calling to speak to my older sister. He wanted her to come volunteer at a drive in WIT. They were running a drive for Jay Feinberg. This was going to be the last drive that they were running for Jay because really they had found someone that Jay was going to go with. It wasn't the best match, but they had found someone good enough and um, they were really going to go with that match. Jay, I think, was pretty much done with drives, but Benji wanted to run this drive. He had gratitude towards Jay because through Jay's drives, one of his very close friends had found a match. So Benji wanted to help Jay. So he was doing this one last drive at WIT with another friend. They called my older sister to volunteer. They needed girl volunteers because it was in a yeshiva and they wanted, at that time, they were taking blood and they needed girls. It was going to be in a separate room. 
my sister agreed and she also asked me would I like to go and I agreed to go the next and it was you know kind of an adventure an exciting thing we woke up early got um we got a ride with Benji's parents to with with maybe an hour and a half away you were um, living in Chicago at the time yeah I was living in Chicago and it was an adventure we were excited to go and volunteer at this drive um and I remember in the car ride someone said to me are you going to get tested Becky and I said no I'm too young I can't get tested I felt like that wasn't even an option. I was off the hook. You know, I didn't really want to get tested because of a needle and blood and, you know, so I didn't really want to get tested and I thought I was off the hook. I didn't think I had to do it. So I was just going to volunteer. When I got there, they placed me in like the welcoming desk. I was with another friend and we were welcoming people and having them sign papers and fill out forms. And the whole time there were these videos running behind me, you know, videos of donors and recipients telling their stories. And it was really moving and it was really powerful. And it got me thinking, wow, this is, you know, this is amazing. And it got like put a little seed like, wow, that would be really amazing, you know? But I still thought I was too young. I thought I couldn't do it. So um, it happened that this girl walked in and we had her sign the papers and she said, I'm 16. And we said, no, you're too young. You can't get tested. She said, no, I called the registry. They said it was okay. So, okay, we let her go through with it. And in my head, I, I thought, oh, I guess that means it's okay for me too. <laughs> so as the time went on, I was considering it. And I was nervous. I was nervous about getting stuck with the needle, you know. But I was also very inspired and moved by the whole experience. So at the very end, I don't know, people kept thinking, are you going to do it back here? Are going to get tested? And finally I said, okay, you know, I'm going to do it. And we called my parents for permission. And um, I decided to go through it, you know, to do it, to get tested. And it turned out they had finished everything. They had packed up the women's room and they were really done. Like this was it. I, I said, okay, I'm going to do it. I like got up the guts and they had me actually do it in the men's room because the women's room had already been packed up. And I was the last person to be tested at that drive. And that drive was the last drive because Jay was going to go with another match already. And that other um, match, as he described, was not really a, a perfect match. It was sort of a, a forced, I guess, right. choice. Right. Like, I guess it was like, you know, they need, they, they're running out of time. They needed something, and this was like the best option that they had. And I remember, I can remember watching that tube of blood go into the styrofoam case that held all the tubes. And, you know, I thought, wow, I was excited that I had done it but I never thought anything would come of it. I never thought I would be the match for Jay Feinberg. You know, it was just, I don't know, it was exciting to, the whole experience was exciting, but it never occurred to me that I would actually be a match for him. So how long was it, you know, I guess you went back home and went along with your I life? I went back home, told my friends the story, an exciting adventure. I volunteered at this drive, went on with my life. I think it was, might've been two weeks later that Benji Merzel, came and he knocked on the door to my house. He lived down the block from us. And he said, can I talk to you? And I didn't know why he wanted to talk to me. And actually no one was home and I was, what? I'm not sure why he'd want to talk to me. And he came in and he said, um, you are a very close match for Jay Feinberg. And would you be willing to go to do further testing? And it was, I felt like I had won the lottery. Really? I couldn't believe it. I felt so excited. I was, you know, 
like just excited and I said of course I'll do it right away like for sure of course I will and he said okay just slow down you need to go further testing you know we need to take this slowly and because I was 16 really under age some more things have to like fall into place in order to actually go through with it and your parents of course it sounds like didn't even know when you first found right. out yeah so I found out before anyone even knew I was yeah no one was there Benji came in and told me and I was I can't remember exactly what happened when my parents came home, I don't remember how, you know, what happened after that exactly, but it was extremely exciting. I really felt like I had won the lottery because like 50,000 people had been tested for Jay Feinberg and it was amazing to be the match. So there was no hesitation, no trepidation? Um, right away, I felt right away, like, of course I'll do it. Um, as, you know, as the time went on and as I went further te- through further testing and it came closer, you know, I was scared. I was nervous and I felt like really afraid to do it. But there wasn't a question in my mind. Of course I would do it. Of course I would go through it. I remember feeling like I wish someone else could do it for me. Like I wish my mother could do it for me, you know, (laughs) but I was the one I had to do it, you know, and it wasn't a question. Of course I would do it. Um, And it was definitely a little bit scary, but I just knew that, of course, it was an important thing I had to do. What was the actual experience like from what I understand from Jay? Um, it's changed quite a bit today. It's much simpler. And both both the initial testing, the swabbing, you know, has transformed, but also the procedure itself is right. a much simpler affair. But back then, 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, um, it was more intensive, maybe uh, more complicated, maybe riskier. What was the actual experience like? Well, I had to come, you know, early to the hospital. I don't remember exactly, you know, all the pre-op I had to do. It was more serious. It was an overnight stay in the hospital. They had to extract the bone marrow from, I don't even know what the bone is called, but, you know, on my lower back. So I was under anesthesia. I had a kind of funny situation where I had low consistency of bone marrow in my blood. So they needed to take out a lot of blood in order to get enough bone marrow. So they took out four pints of blood. Um, and I think people have five pints of blood, you know, all together. Wow. <laughs> so really they had to take out a lot. I had to, I had already previously donated two pints before my operation so they can replenish with my own blood. They thought I might need a blood transfusion and there were friends, of course, willing to donate, but I didn't need one Baruch Hashem. I was under anesthesia for three hours and I woke up and I felt dizzy, confused. I don't know, but you know, that's kind of my memory of it. Afterwards, it was basically a recovery from the anesthesia. So it took me some, the anesthesia, you know, being under for so long, takes time to recover. So I felt nauseated a little bit. I felt shivers. My body was shaking. I was on an IV. I remember thinking, like, I'm going through this. Imagine what Jay has to go through, you know, for years and years and years of treatment. And this is like a day or a couple days for me. And it's all for the good. It's all for someone else. And it's not scary. You know, I'm not afraid of him for my own life. So I remember thinking like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, what he has to go through really gave me empathy towards what he has to go through or what wow. a person with cancer has to go through. Did you have an immediate interaction with him? Did you, first of all, did he know who you were right away? And if not, at what point did he? And, and when did that connection occur? Well, we met a year later. Um, and we had like written letters to each other beforehand that he did know, you know, he knew who I was because this drive had been private. If it had been done through a registry, he might not have even known my name, but it, since it had been a private drive, he knew my name. 
he knew I lived down the block from Benji. He was the one who had get, received the results. You know, he had gotten it. He saw the results. He was the one who said, this is, you know, a good match for me. So, yeah, we wrote letters. We spoke on the phone. And then we met a year later. It was amazing to meet his family, his parents. It was like I had another set of parents. You know, like they just immediately loved me like I was their own daughter. Meeting him was very exciting. And we've just always been connected since then. You know, there's just a very special relationship and a very deep relationship. Wow. So you stayed in touch over the years? Yeah, we stayed in touch. Different times, you know, it was more frequently. When I lived in New York, I was able to see him more often. Now in Silver Spring, I don't see him as often. But we still talk and we're still connected. And um, I'm so proud of him and just amazed at what he has accomplished, his talent and skills that he has and how he's used it in order to build this organization, it's really mind boggling and amazing. I assume, did he like come to your wedding? Was there? Oh, of course he came to my wedding. <laughs> Definitely. And yes, I mean, before that we would, some, you know, we would like meet in New York. Sometimes we'd go out to dinner together. He would, I would go to the dinners. When I was single living in New York, I would always go to the, the dinners. And there was always, you know, we just, you know, we kept up. And then after I got married and, you know, got, like got busy and moved away, I haven't seen him as often, but still, it's a very, very special relationship. Have you yeah. followed along? It sounds like you have followed along the progress of the organization's yeah, I mean, growth. Yeah, it's amazing what, it, what he has created. It's really just mind boggling, you know, to see the power of one person, the koach of one person, his determination, his desire, you know, to help others. He is fearless and he just, he can't be stopped. He's amazing. You know, he's just, what he's created is, is beyond what I ever would have expected. Came from this little organization, this little, you know, Friends of Jay turned into this worldwide organization that helps thousands of people. I seem to recall from uh, stories I've heard around that you may have had some really cool encounters Meeting possibly the president, is that, yeah, what, that was what's that about? Well, Jay, since he's so important in the community and in the Jewish world, he was invited to the Hanukkah party at the White House. I can't remember what year this was. Which president? It was President Bush. The second. Yes, yes. <laughs> I was in fifth grade, I think, for the first Bush. Okay. So. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, it was the second Bush, and he um, was invited to the White House. He invited me to go along which was very exciting. So I was living in New York. I stayed in a hotel. We went to the Hanukkah party. We met President Bush. We got a picture. It was really like just such an exciting experience. Powerful to meet the President of the United States. I guess my last question is just, how has this kind of affected your life now? I mean, again, we're, we're coming on 23 years later, I guess yeah. it is. Yeah. How has it impacted your life in the current moment and in, in right. your adult life as, uh, as time has gone on? Right. Well, I guess the lesson is always the same, you know, from the time I was 16 until now, it's this feeling of the power of one person, the power of one action, and that we don't see, you know, I happen to be able to see how getting tested led to this amazing thing, you know, Jay's life, Jay being able to survive cancer, and then creating this organization and helping thousands of people. So it was like the, the curtain was like lifted for me. And I saw how like the action I did had this large effect on the world. But 
the truth is, is that every act of kindness we do has that kind of effect. We don't always see, you know, how it affects the world, but it always does. And so I think that's a very important lesson. The power of one person, the power of one action, and that our actions really affect the world in a great way. We don't always see it, but we have to know that it does. What a powerful and beautiful message. A wonderful way to close. Thank you so yeah. much, Becky, for joining us and for sharing of your personal history and your passion with us. Thank you for having me. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.